So we welcome you. This is message seven in our series, The King Size Challenge. So we are studying, aren't we, the ten defining moments that these ten kings in the Old Testament faced. Now, you're going to face your defining moments. These kings face their defining moments. And we're looking at these ancient kings that lived like 2,500 years ago because there's something that we can learn from each of them. We can learn how to face our defining moments, the same ones they faced, by looking at their lives. And you look at that scripture there, the key scripture, Romans 15, 4, for our whole series, actually in the New Testament, but it's looking back on the Old Testament, and Paul said everything written in the past that is about these kings was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we're studying these lives, these ten kings, so that we can find hope, instruction, insight, so we can face our defining moment well. This morning, Asa's king-size attribute. Now, a little background about King Asa. He served as the third king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, I'm going to show you a little picture here of the divided kingdom. You know this. And here we have a picture showing the divided kingdom here, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. Asa reigned in Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. And he did so reigning from 911 B.C. to 870 B.C. 41 years he was in office. He was one of the three good kings. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But most significantly, Asa exemplified one of the most admirable traits in all of the Bible. It's an attribute that all of us can possess. It's an attribute that all of us should possess. And it should be there in greater and greater measure as time goes on. But it's not always easy to possess. Now, you're going to face Asa's defining moment your whole life. You faced his defining moment this last week. You're going to face it this week. You're going to face it even today, a defining moment that will determine whether you will embrace or deny this attribute. There are two types of people here this morning. You are one of two types of people. You're an embracer, first of all. If you're an embracer, you're a person that says, yes, Lord, I choose to embrace this attribute this attribute that you cherish, or you're a denier. You say, sorry, Lord, I know I should embrace this attribute. I know you cherish it, but I just, I'm not going to bring myself to live it out. So you're an embracer or a denier in any given moment. Another question that I just want to present to you is this. When the Lord looks at each of us this morning, what is he looking for? Hmm. He's looking for one thing, this attribute that we're going to speak about this morning. You're either embracing this one attribute in any given moment or denying this attribute. And this attribute is summarized in the most famous verse in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And I would venture to say that 99% of you have either yourself quoted this verse or have heard it quoted, but I would also venture to say 98% of you have quoted it incorrectly or you've understood it incorrectly because the only way you can understand this verse that is incredibly familiar 
is you must understand the context. You must understand what's taking place around the verse. So often the verse is quoted and it's not given in its context and therefore it's void of its true meaning because the verse is describing, watch this, one thing that God cherishes in every one of his children, one thing he's looking for in your life today. You say, where's the verse? It's found in 2 Chronicles 16.9. You've heard this, right? For the eyes of the Lord, they range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. Question, what does a heart look like that's fully committed to God? You can't have the answer to that unless you understand the story around this verse. That's what we're going to study today. Wow, it's powerful. You see, the attribute that God cherishes, the one thing He's looking for in your life, Asa possessed. But until you understand the story, you can't know what 2 Chronicles 16.9 is really referencing. So let's see if you can recognize Asa's king-size attribute. You should be in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. This is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do three things. First, we are going to read... The three chapters. I need to paint for you the picture, the drama of what's going on. Do a little teaching as we go along. Second, I'm going to state very clearly what Asa's king size attribute is. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to give you three things that will erode this attribute in our lives, and then three things that will build this attribute in our lives. And it all comes from King Asa's life. Now, let me say one more thing. Chapter 14 and 15 is also embracing this attribute. These are positive chapters. Chapter 16 is also denying this attribute. This is a negative chapter. Let's begin with chapters 14 and 15, the positive chapters. This is also embracing his attribute. As I read along, try to figure out what his attribute is. Chapter 14, verse 1. And Abijah, who was Asa's father, rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, Jerusalem. Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. And in the days, uh, the country was at peace for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord as God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places, smashed the sacred stones. Remember the sacred stones? Baal worship. We showed you a picture of Baal. And cut down the Asherah poles, the female part of Baal worship. We talked about that. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey the laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars. He's taken down all sorts of false worship in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he's given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. Verse 8, Asa had an army, look at the size of this, of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, armed with small shields and with bows, all these were brave fighting men. Let me show you a picture of, again, the 12 tribes. Now, again, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. So you've got Judah and Benjamin who comprised the southern kingdom. Out of these two tribes, the southern kingdom of which Asa reigned, you have a standing army of 580,000. 
thousand men who are ready to go to battle. Now, the plot thickens. An enemy arrives from Egypt. Verse 9, Zerah the Cushite marched against them, that is Asa. Now, Zerah is a Cushite from the land of Cush, which is in Egypt. Actually, it's south of Egypt. Today, it would be modern-day Sudan. And this horde of Egyptians, we don't, are not given the number, but it was a vast army. And if Asa's army could potentially be 580,000, so this could have potentially been over that many men coming to fight. And, and he had, they had 300 chariots, and they came as far as Marasha. Now, Marasha, here's a picture of Marasha, so you can see where in Israel this battle is taking place. Right up here, there's Jerusalem, and you can see just south of Jerusalem, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, this horde of Egyptians comes. What does Asa do? Verse 10, Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephthah near Marasha. And then notice verse 11, Asa prays. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. What does God do? The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar, such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not be recovered. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. The men of Judah carried off a large amount of plunder. They destroyed all the villages around Gerar, for the terror of the Lord had fallen upon them. They plundered all these villages since there was so much booty there. Booty is a little different than what they talk about today. I want to make sure you're listening. All right. Are we good? Are we good? Should we take that out of the tape, Rick? I don't know. Well, we'll have to figure it out. They also attacked the camps and the herdsmen and carried off droves of sheep and goats and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Awesome victory! What does God do? God then sends a prophet to Asa, chapter 15. The Lord, the Spirit of God, came upon Azariah, son of Odin. Now God's bringing a message to Asa. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me. Asa and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was, out, was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel. They're speaking about the judges period and other times in Israel's periods, history when they just were denying God. And sought him, and he was found by them. Verse 5, in those days it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another, and one city by another, because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong, and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. Now, what does Asa do with that positive message from this prophet? When Asa heard these words, and the prophecy of Azariah son of Odin, the prophet, he took courage. Wow, this is, this is good news. Yeah, we're with God. He's with us, and yeah. And, he, and look at all these reforms he does. Asa, he responded. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns that he captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. 
Then he assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who had settled among them, for large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. Now, if you go back to the other uh, map of the 12, 12 tribes, you know, you've just got Manasseh and you've got other uh, Gad coming over to Judah and Benjamin, not that they united, but they're immigrating to this area, to the southern kingdom, because God is with this king, and it's good. They assembled at Jerusalem, verse 10, in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 head of sheep and cattle, 7,000 sheep and goats from the plunder they had brought back. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and all their hearts with all their souls, all who would not seek him, the, the Lord, the God, you know, they, they put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. They took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation, with shoutings, and with trumpets and horns. All Judah rejoiced about the oath. They had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly, and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. King Asa also deposed his grandmother, Makba, from her position as queen mother, because she had made a repulsive Asherah pole, Asa cut down the pole and broke it up and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Here's a picture of the Kidron Valley. We were there just a couple of uh, months ago. That's where Asa burnt up this, at, this uh, pole, Baal worship. Although he did not remove the high places from Israel, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. He brought into the temple of God the silver and gold and all the articles that he and his father had dedicated. There was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's raid. Wow. What a turning to God. What a time of peace and prosperity and victory and it's exciting. Are you sensing what Asa's attribute might be? It's a little obscure there. A little hard maybe to see. But now let's contrast those first two chapters with what is going to happen now in chapter 16. And I think something's going to begin to really crystallize in your mind chapter 16. This time, a different, a much smaller enemy arises. Verse 1, in the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, now we've got the king of the northern tribe of Israel, names Basha, he rises up, and he goes against Judah, that's Asa, and fortified Ramah, to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. You say, what's going on? Here's a picture of Ramah. Here is Jerusalem. Just north, five miles north of Jerusalem is a place called Ramah. I know it's hard kind of to picture this, but uh, the location of Ramah, the topography of Ramah, if you could be there with me and see it, is incredibly strategic and it effectively blocked off all traffic and trade into and out of Jerusalem from the north. I know this is hard. This is a huge threat. It'd be like us. If you're living in San Francisco and, and your enemy seizes the Golden Gate Bridge. If you're living in Castro Valley and your enemy seizes 580 and 238. This is a huge threat. What does Asa do with this threat? Oh, he prays, just like, no, no, he doesn't do that this time. Verse 2, Asa then took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple. These are articles, holy articles, dedicated to God in the most holy place on the planet. 
And he takes these articles, and he also takes some silver and gold out of his own palace, so he was desperate, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. This king, who is this guy? He is a pagan king in Aram, which was northwest of Israel. I don't know if we have another picture to show that. Yes, here we go. Here's Syria. Damascus is where, this is, where he was at. And, and he's making, he's sending some stuff up to this king, up to the north. Why? Well, check it out here and see what it says. He's doing this to actually <laughs> make a covenant with this guy. He says, let there be a treaty between me and you. He said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Look at verse 4. Ben-Hadad agreed with the king, with King Asa, and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Aijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, as well as the storehouses of Naphtali. So this king from the north is putting pressure on the king of Israel, Asa's enemy. When Basha heard this, well, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned you know, his work there at Ramah. Then King Asa brought the men of Judah and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timbers that Basha had been using with them and they built up Geba and Mizpah. Wow. This time Asa turns to a pagan king to help solve his problem. What does God do? God sends him a prophet. This time it's not a good message. And this is where our key verse comes into context. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied, you relied on the king of Aram and not on me, on the Lord your God. The army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hands. We're not the Cushites. He's speaking about Egypt, the Egyptians, a mighty army. I mean, like 580,000 strong chariots and horsemen. Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered you from them. For the eyes of the Lord, Asa, they range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing. And from now on, you will be at war. How does Asa respond? Does he find courage with that message? Verse 10, Asa was angry with the seer. Because of this, he was so enraged that he put him in prison. What happened to Asa's heart? The same thing that happens to many hearts of Christians today with this beautiful attribute that God so wants in our lives. We'll get into it in a second. And he brutally opposed some of the people. Asa, why did you fall? How did it end for Asa? The events of Asa's reign from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Through his disease, even though it was severe, even in his illness, he did, did not seek help from God, but only from the physicians. He's only turning to man now, not to God. Then in the 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his fathers. They buried him in the tomb that had been cut out for him in the city of David. They laid him on a briar covered with spices and various blended perfumes, 
and they made a huge fire in his honor. Wow. Asa lives out this precious attribute, and there's peace, and there's prosperity in chapter 14 and 15. And then he denies this king-size attribute in chapter 16, and there's war, and there's turmoil. Okay, you're like, Mark, please give us the attribute. <laughs> Enough. Here it is. Asa's king-size attribute, reliance on God, to rely on God. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you go, eh, but let's talk about it. This is where the message turns to you. And most of all, this message now turns to your heart right here. This is where I'm praying for the rest of our time, you will open up this area. Some of you have kept this closed to God. This right here is precious to God, and he wants it to become softer right now. Let God speak yes to your head, but let it go to your hearts. So I want to ask you some questions. Who do you rely on? When things are great, things are going good, who do you rely on? When things are difficult and challenging, who do you rely on? When you're facing, I mean, a vast, vast army that is so threatening, you don't know how you're going to find victory, who do you rely on? When things are overwhelming in your life, who do you rely on? Who is the first person you call for help when you are in need? Is it a person? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it your doctor? Is it... If it's anyone other than God, what's happened to your heart? See, we can rely upon ourselves, others, or God at any given moment. My question for your heart, who is it for your heart? Who do you turn to? You see, God is looking for someone who will rely on Him. He's looking for someone who will depend upon Him. God is looking for someone who at, will ask Him for help, who will trust Him, who will rely upon Him. Will you be that man? Will you be that woman? Will you be that young person that will rely on God? Will you embrace this one attribute that God longs for in his children? Now, let's read chapter 16, verse 9 again in context. For the eyes of the Lord, they range throughout this whole room right now, right here this morning, to strengthen those hearts who are fully committed to God because they rely totally on God. That's how the verse needs to be read. Look before verse 9. Yet when you relied on the Lord, He delivered you from your enemy's hand. Victory is in store for the person who relies on God. Look at the end of verse 9. You've done a foolish thing, Asa. From now on, you're going to have war. You've done a foolish thing, Asa, by not relying on God first. And now there's going to be disappointment and difficulty in your life. You see, Asa had two parts to his life, didn't he? He had the early part 
the first 35 years of his reign where he did exceptionally well, where in his heart he relied upon God. But then there was part two, the latter part, the last six years of his life, where unfortunately he began to rely on self and others and God moved to the third position, if even that. Something happened to his heart. Oh, I see this. I see this trying to creep into my own heart. Beloved, and I see this with Christians that I minister to. It's subtle. It's subtle. But you can look back on your life and go, when did I stop relying on God? Maybe for you it's going to be the opposite. Maybe for you, much of your early life, you refused to rely on God. That was just you. Nah, do it my way. Self-made man, self-made woman. I did it my way. But then the latter part of your life, or from this day forward, you began embracing reliance on God. What a defining moment in your life that was when the light turned on. I'm going to rely on God, not on me or others. Or maybe the defining moment for you, I see a lot of young people here this morning. It doesn't matter your age. But this can be an absolutely defining moment in your life if you would say, God, I'm going to be 2 Chronicles 16, 9. I'm going to be that person who, as you look for hearts, I will be the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who will rely on you, number one. That will be a defining moment in your life. Let's talk about three things that erode our reliance on God. You see, if we're going to live this out, we need to know what's going to erode and what will build. And we can learn this all from Asa's life. These are three things that are subtle that we learn from his negative example of what will erode reliance on God in our lives. Number one is this, relying on man only to solve our problems. Have you slipped into this temptation? I'm not asking you, I'm asking your hearts. Has there been a switch, a change, a subtle change in the way your heart is with God where now you are no longer relying on Him necessarily as number one, but you're looking to yourself or you're looking to others? Maybe something going on in your marriage, something going on with your family, something going on with your finances, something going on with your health, and now you're finding that you're not turning to God first, trusting him, relying on him, but it's very tempting to turn to a Ben-Hadad rather than God, just like what Asa did in chapter 16. Asa, he takes the silver and gold, he takes his money and the treasures of God, and he goes to Ben-Hadad and says, let's make an agreement. Can you help me out with this problem? He turns to a man, a person rather than God. That's what Asa did. Earlier, he relied on God to solve his problems with the Egyptians, and God gave Asa victory over hundreds of thousands of Egyptians. Now Asa, he's relying on a pagan king to solve a much lesser problem with the king of Israel who took over a puny little city called Ramah. And there, something shifted in Asa's heart. There's something going on with his heart, reliance on God. Asa failed to rely on God as he had previously done. Is anything going like that on in your life? 
There used to be that innocent trust, faith, dependence on God. But then this subtle shift, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jeremiah 17, 5 and 7, very strong verse here. Cursed is the one who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. You see, one of the signs that your reliance on God is eroding in your heart is when you begin to rely on man only and you kind of leave God in the shadows. Second thing that erodes our reliance on God is anger at God's warnings. Has this ever happened in your life? Or do you see it where God out of his love will send a prophet to you? He'll send his word to you to remind you, hey, this isn't good. You're turning to people or a doctor or whatever. You need to turn to me first. And God tries to get our attention like he did with Asa in verse 7. He sends Hananiah and says, Asa, because you relied on the king of Aram, guess what? Troubles. And then what happens with Asa? He got angry and enraged. He put this guy in prison. He tries to lock God's word up in prison. Some of us are doing that with God's word. We push God's word away. And he brutally oppressed some of the people. Sometimes we oppress God's people who are coming to us with God's word. God sends to Asa a prophet to warn him of his waywardness. He's depending on himself, not depending on God. And there's anger and rage and he throws a prophet in prison. Beware of ever blocking God out. Beware of ever shushing God. Shh, 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 God, God. When you start doing that, that says something about your heart. You're losing the most precious attribute that God longs for in his children. That they depend on him. They rely on him. Be careful. Third thing that can erode our reliance on God is refusing to seek help from God. I don't know. We can sometimes slip into this. In verse 12, we see this. I mean, this is wild to me. Asa is afflicted with this disease, and, and through his disease, even though it was severe, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from physicians. Rather than relying on God for healing, he only relied on human doctors. He failed to seek help from God, the one true source of healing. Wow. Three things. You ever seen something erode, a tree erode, you know, by a stream or something you've owned erode and rust and just, this is what can happen to our heart if we're not careful, beloved. The reliance that we once shared with God that was so beautiful and tender and pure and innocent can get corrupted. So I want you to talk about this at your tables. Which of these three things most seeks, do you think, to come at you and erode your reliance on God? Is it relying on man only? Is it anger sometimes at God's warnings? You know, God's people, God's word, you know, God's coming to you, but you're shushing him. Or is it refusing to seek help from God? You know, going to him first. Why don't you take a moment, talk about that at your tables, go for it. Okay, let's look now three things that build our reliance on God. Those are the things we want to avoid. Here's the things we want to pursue. 
these are the things in Asa's life, the positive things that will help cultivate a heart of reliance on God. And the first is this, cultivate a relationship of reliance with God. Now, let me just ask you a question. As time goes on, you know, you're getting older as a Christian. Are you becoming more and more, watch this, reliant and dependent upon God versus becoming more and more self-sufficient? In the United States, being self-sufficient is like this huge be yourself. To God, that is not a great attribute. To God, you becoming dependent on him. When's the last time you've just picked up a little infant? You've just held this little baby in your arms and you've looked at this little one and, and they look back at you and they're so dependent on you for everything and it's beautiful and you're just, God wants that in you. He wants to look into your eyes and see you dependent on him. The disciples came to Jesus once and they said, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember what Jesus did in Luke chapter 9? He said, you, come here. Actually, little girl, right here. What's, what's her name? Would you come here? What? Haley. Is this Haley? Hey, Haley, can I pick you up? Are you all right with that? You won't bite? Okay. <laughs> the only reason I'm picking you up is because they can't see you. Okay? Ah. Uh, so Jesus brought a little girl before the dad, and he said, this is the greatest in the kingdom. Because little Haley allowed me to pick her up. She's totally dependent on me. I could drop her right now, right? Yeah. I would never do that. I could get used to this. No. Thank you. Give her a hand. Okay. You're a little too big. I mean, come on now. But you see, this, this is what Jesus says is the greatest, is someone so dependent that will crawl up into my arms and just rely fully. That used to be some of our hearts. And we think we've matured and outgrown that. Never outgrow that, beloved. Now, you've got to cultivate this relationship because the tendency is to become independent of God because knowledge puffs up. But love edifies, you see? Now, let's talk about this. Asa, you see, in his beginning years, he cultivated this relationship of reliance on God. It was really beautiful. It was tender and pure. And it was so innocent. You go back to chapter 14, just point out a couple things. It says there in verse 2, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the, his God. And he remo removed the foreign altars and the high places and smashed the sacred stones. And he cut down the Asherah poles and he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God is God of his fathers. I mean, you just see this pure, innocent relationship that he had of just total dependence on God. And then you look at his first prayer in chapter uh, 14, verse 11. Just look at this. Then Asa called, to the, and he's facing these hundreds of thousands of Egyptians. And he called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless, I am powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. 
Do not let man prevail against you. Wow. This prayer gives us a picture. It's a window into his heart. Question for you. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that to God? And you showed God your heart. Do you see that? He says, we rely on you. That word rely in the Hebrew, sa'an. Can you say that after me? Sa'an. It's a beautiful word. It's used five times. It's the theme of these uh, three chapters. And it literally means to lean oneself upon. It's a little girl that leaned, put her whole weight in the arms of a stranger, (laughs) which I am to her. But to you, it's leaning, it's, it's the same word that's used in Proverbs 3, 5. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but trust God. Lean your weight upon God. Now, let me give you a secret here. God can't resist a person who relies upon him, who depends upon him. Have you ever asked yourself, what is irresistible to God? It's not what, it's who. Who is irresistible to God? Someone who rely on him completely. That is irresistible to God. It's like this little girl, she could have asked whatever she wanted to me right now. She's right here in my arms. What do you want? I'm like putty. God's heart becomes putty when your heart is so reliant on him. Look at this prayer. Asa called to the Lord. Do you call upon the Lord? I mean, really from your heart. This is a heart prayer. To the Lord is God. And he said, Lord, there is no one like you. When's the last time you've told God, Lord, there is no one like you? To help the powerless against the mighty. Some of you are facing some things that are, when's the last time you said, God, there's no one like you to help the powerless, that's me, against the mighty. When's the last time your heart has been that way to God? We rely on you. When's the last time you told God, I rely on you? And in your name, and we we have come against this vast army, O Lord. You are our God. Don't let man prevail against you. Wow. That's irresistible to God, that kind of a heart. When's the last time you said to God, God, I'm 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strongly support me because I'm fully dependent on you. This is my heart, God. That's irresistible to God. And the only way that comes about is because you're cultivating a relationship with God that is of dependence upon him. Because these are your prayers. This is your hearts. Let me give you a second way. We build reliance on God, and it's embracing hearing the word of God. So also, here's another question. As time goes on, are you becoming more and more receptive and open to hearing God's word? The Bible as it's taught. And As people speak into your lives, other Christians, are you open to hearing the word of God? If so, your reliance on the Lord is growing as well. And Asa, in his early years, he modeled this to a T. There was this softness in his heart. You see that in chapter 15. 
in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Azariah, son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. And you can just sense as you read that, that Asa is drinking this in. And then his response, when Asa heard these words, he took courage. Watch this. This is how you know that you're really hearing God. is because after hearing him, the response will always be one thing. Courage. If you don't find in your life courage from God, this is the reason. You are not hearing God's word. You're listening to it. You're thinking it. But it's not really heard and coming into your heart because when God's word is heard, it responds in courage. You know what that courage is? That courage gives you the faith, the faith to trust God. It gives you the boldness to rely upon God in circumstances that just seem crazy. Are you serious? I'm going to trust God. I'm going to rely on God. The only way that's going to come about is if you're hearing the word of God, you're drinking in this book, it's coming into your heart, and it's giving you the faith to trust, to rely upon God no matter what. It starts by cultivating this relationship with God, but then it moves to hearing God's word, just like you are. You're drinking in the word of God right now. I see that in your faces. I can see the courage coming to your life because God's word is speaking to you and it's giving you the boldness to trust him, to rely up on him. What does Romans 10, 17 say? Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Let me give you the third way we build our reliance on God. And it's this, when we enact spiritual disciplines that draw us closer to God. So the other thing would be to just ask you as time goes on as a Christian, are you cultivating disciplines, spiritual disciplines that build this reliance on God in your life? And when Asa was engaged in these spiritual disciplines, he lived this out and he did this in his early years. And in chapter 15, you see all sorts of spiritual disciplines, choices he's making that will build his life up spiritually and his reliance on God take place. In verse 8, it says that, you know, he, uh, he ends up, uh, he took courage and he removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah. He's beginning to remove. It's a discipline, a choice to remove anything that would cause him to be tempted to worship a false god. Make the connection of what that looks like in your life today. Because the false gods of this age will want you to depend on them, not on the true God. You've got to remove them. That's a discipline. Verses 10 and 11, they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 head of cattle. They're right here. Asa assembled with God's people. That's a spiritual discipline, just like you're doing right now, and worshiped. Verse 12. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord. Again, he made a covenant to seek the Lord with all his heart and his soul. And it says in verse 15, Asa rejoiced about the oath that he had taken and sworn wholeheartedly. And they sought God eagerly. He sought God eagerly. So the question for you and for me is as time goes on, what are our current spiritual disciplines? Watch this. That are growing us closer and closer to God feeding this sense of dependence upon him. What is that for you? I can't answer that for you, but this we know. When Asa's heart was completely reliant on God, he had those things going, those safeguards in his life. And for me, I can, only, I can tell you some of those for me. 
What keeps my heart dependent on God is meeting with a young lady named Tracy every morning other than Sunday, and we read the Bible and we pray together. That's a spiritual discipline. If you're married, I so encourage you to read the Bible and pray with your spouse. If you're not married, find someone at 6 in the morning who isn't married. Knock on their door. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) There's ways that we can build that into our lives. That would freak your neighbor out. Hey, let's read the Bible together. It's going to be different for everyone, right? My personal quiet time, six days a week, I'll never miss. Sometimes I miss it when I'm, you know, in a different country. It's hard. But pretty much that is a discipline. It feeds this, you're right, God, you're in control, you're sovereign, you're powerful. I don't need to trust in man only. Or me only. You're able. We need to hear this again and again and again. You know, I used to just, just, you know, listen to the news all the time in my car. Seldom do they do that anymore. I listen to Christian music. It, it lifts my soul and keeps me dependent on God. And in that car I can sing and you can't hear me because you don't want to hear me. We all find our things, you know, the disciplines. But you get away from those disciplines and your heart starts to turn to you and maybe others and then God last. Are you following me? Okay, uh, let's talk about that a little bit right now. Just as a discussion question and then I want to wrap this thing up. Which of these three things that Asa did that are positive do you find to be the most helpful to build your reliance on God? In other words, what keeps your heart tethered to God, reliance upon him, your faith strong in him so you can trust him and rely on him. What is it? Which one of those three things or something else in your life? Talk about that at your tables. Okay. Hey, let me wrap it up by just giving you one final question that really is a bit of a challenge to your life, and it's this. This is the question. Are you willing to face Asa's king-size challenge. You say, what is that challenge? It's the challenge of this, of living a life of radical, full-blown reliance upon God. Are you willing to take that challenge? See, God is looking for this one attribute in our lives. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout this whole room right now to strengthen, empower Build up those whose hearts are fully committed to him because this person, you, you rely on God. Will you be that man? Will you be that woman? Will you be that boy? Will you be that girl who will rely on God? This week, our reliance on God is going to be tested, right? It's going to be tested. And we will either embrace a life of reliance on God in certain circumstances and situations, or we will deny a life of reliance on God in certain situations and circumstances. And, and some of us, God has brought us here because he's saying, I don't want this. You look at verse 9 at the, the beginning of it. When Asa relied on God, guess what? There's victory. There was blessing and peace and strength comes to our life when we rely on God. But then at the end of the verse, you've done a foolish thing by not relying on me. And guess what? There's war, and there's turmoil, and there's anxiety. There's a cost 
When we say, no, God, I'm not going to rely on you. I'm not going to have that kind of heart. But then there was a blessing, too, when we say, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to have that kind of heart that you so cherish. I don't know what derailed Asa. The Bible doesn't say. We could speculate. But the Bible doesn't say what derailed him from having this heart of reliance on God. I guarantee one thing, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. You know, all our, we have three boys. They're all different. But uh, they've all manifest the quality of this reliance upon their daddy. And Josh, probably, he's the Marine. He's the guy who jumps out of planes. He's incredibly fearless. They all show fearlessness. But Josh is probably in a category, and all the boys would agree about this. Maybe he doesn't have a brain. I don't know. And I'm just joking. But I remember it started off when he was just a little boy, just a little dude, on his bed, and I'd get on my knees, and I'd say jump, and he would jump. And then that got a little boring. So we put him on the counter, and I'd get on my knees, and he'd jump. And then, what else? Oh, let's put him on the refrigerator, which we did. Jump. And just full-blown, total trust, totally relying on daddy, they were like, let's put him on the roof. <laughs> Only when Tracy was away. Some of you are looking at me like, now, are you serious? No, I'm not serious. <laughs> not on that. But he would have in a second. It's a beautiful thing when your son jumps into your arms and shows that trust. It really, I cherish those memories. And they still trust their daddy today. I still cherish. God just wants you to jump into his arms with your heart this morning. That's the whole message. He just wants your heart. Give him your heart. It's a defining moment. And you'll have to continue to give him your heart so your heart doesn't turn like Asa in the later years. Amen? Let's pray.